What is up, ENC? How are you guys? You look good. You look good. I love, I love you. <laughs> I love this school. Um, I love this community. I, I did not graduate from this school, but I married into this school. My wife graduated from here. Her whole family, I think, went here. She grew up in this church. Um, I consider you all my alma mater-in-law is a, kind of the term I use. Um, so I love you guys. It's good to see familiar faces here. I know a few of you uh, might get to know some of you more. I would love that. Um, I'm also, I'm a big fan of your, your chaplain, Montag. Um, he's, a, he's a great guy. you got a great chaplain. Montag is a, is a friend of mine. And something that a lot of people don't know um, about Montague is that we, he and I were in a late 80s, early 90s uh, television sitcom together, and I think we might have a picture of that, if we, if we can, there we are. Um, we were, that's, I had hair back then, Montague, looks about the same. Yeah, look at that. Um, that was, you can take it down, that's going to be distracting, but um. That, what were we thinking? Why did we do that? That was from our like, Kansas City seminary days, and we thought it would be hilarious to take a JCPenney photo with our roommates, and it was, it was weird. It was funny, though, right? But it was weird. But, so that's, that can make you look at him differently, I suppose. But um, good to be here, though. So I, I happen to believe that one of the clearest things revealed about God through Jesus Christ, is that God is with us in the middle of our pain, in the middle of our struggle, in the middle of our sin. Um, He's not scared by that. He's not put off by your struggle. He's with us in the middle of it. And so here's a struggle for us this morning, and this is going to kind of frame where we're headed over these next few minutes. Um, The struggle is pride, okay? And that gets played out in so many different ways. It could get played out as arrogance, as thinking that you're better than other people, of uh, being preoccupied by how people view you, of, um, of, of thinking that your opinion or your perspective on life is somehow more valuable than somebody else's. Or pride could even get played out in comparing yourself to other people and allowing yourself to feel inferior to other people. Um, believing that somehow you are or your opinion is less valuable than somebody else or someone else's opinion. So the struggle is pride, and here's the opposite of that struggle. It's one word. It's humility. Um, Pride or self-absorption is at the root of all destruction and all division in our world, but humility, which could only come from Christ, is at the root of all love. Humility. Um, Apostle Paul is going to help us out this morning a little bit. Paul is one of those people in the Bible that knows quite a bit about what it means to be made humble. Um, He was knocked off of his horse to the ground by the power of God um, on his way to persecute Christians, and so he was made humble. Um, He lost his eyesight for three days, and he had to feel his way around in that moment, and he knew what that was like to be made humble. When he started proclaiming the good news of Christ that had changed his life, um, he was beaten on occasion or put in prison on occasion, so he knew what it meant to be made humble, and he's writing this letter 
to this church in Philippi while he's in prison and he's talking to them about humility. And so in Philippians chapter two, verses three through five, he says these words to this church he's writing to. Philippians chapter two, verses three through five. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Um, so we live in a culture where it's really unnatural to be humble, uh, really unnatural to not be prideful. Um, some people say that we live in the most self-absorbed society in the history of humanity. Um, I don't think that's accurate. I think probably throughout all of history, uh, throughout all of time, all of humanity has been pretty equally prideful, pretty equally self-absorbed. I think one thing that's unique about the time period we live in right now is we have this capability to broadcast our self-absorption on a much bigger and louder stage than ever before. An example of this, everybody say Instagram. Thanks for whispering Instagram. Everybody say Instagram. That, you said it, thank you. Um, or, or, like, or Snapchat or whatever your preferred brand of social media consumption is. And this is kind of how it works. We all know how it works. You get a page or a profile or that story and you post a picture of yourself um, showing what you want other people to look like, a short, um, a short video of yourself or what you're doing. And these pictures now, um, like let's just talk about these filters that they have for a second. Like, you don't have to look good to look good anymore, right? Like anybody can look good in these pictures and um, you get to tell people what you're doing with your time, like whether, you get to tell people like whether you ate an entire chocolate cake or whether you went on a five mile run or maybe you attempted to do both, like you get to tell people what you're doing with your time and you get to tell people, maybe this is a better way to say it, you get to tell people a version of yourself that you want other people to see. That page, that story, that profile, it's all about us. Um, now, it might sound like I'm hating on social media, and that's not the case. Um, and in fact, I wanted to show you my Facebook page, if I could. Um, Facebook is how I roll these days. Hope that's okay. I know it's not. If, if we could put it up there. Um, Here's my page. That's, that's my family there in that little, if you guys could see that, there's my kids. Um, pages, oh, thank you, their profile picture. This is an old picture, actually. Um, the twins are a lot bigger now, but I got four kids. There's my wife, Jenny. I wanted you guys to see that picture. That's kind of all about me. Next, next slide here. It, um, it scrolls down. That's, maybe you can't see it. That's a picture that was posted. Some of you guys were there, actually. It's from our district teen camp. Somebody posted it a couple of months ago. It's me launching water balloons at middle schoolers. Um, youth ministry is pretty awesome. And uh, so that's me. I think, David, there's your picture right there on the side. I don't know if you can see it. Anyway, uh, some of you guys are up there. So that's me. Thank you. You can, you can take that down. Um, that page is all about me, um, and it's one just small example of this much bigger reality, and the reality is this. It's so easy in our world, in our culture, to be pretty me-focused. Um, so what does it actually look like to be humble? Um, to not just act humble, but to actually be humble. 
Paul, in that passage that we just read, he says that humility has a lot to do with considering other people's needs and struggles and joys better than you consider your own stuff. And um, C.S. Lewis, he gets attributed with this quote that I think is pretty helpful. He says, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Um, So humility is obviously not thinking too highly of yourself, that's arrogance, but it's also not thinking too low of yourself. Sometimes we think that a humble person is somebody who talks about how inferior they are or how awful their life is, but that's still a form of pride. That's, that's kind of self-preoccupation, right? Um, what does it look like to be humble? So Apostle Paul, um, he's the man. He's a, he tells us what humility is. Um, he says it's basically it's thinking of yourself less, but then he shows us how to be humble. Um, Paul had every reason to be arrogant. Um, In fact, he lists a few of these reasons in chapter three of Philippians. He goes through this list of reasons of why he should be or could be boasting. And it's stuff like um, he he was a Jew that knew the law better than pretty much anyone. He knew all the Torah, he knew the scriptures, he knew it. He was a Pharisee, which meant that he not only knew the law better than anyone, but he also knew how to like implement the law better than anyone else. Um, he maintained a perfect 4.0 GPA. He um, like maintained that full ride scholarship. He was good at sports, but also really smart, like one of those annoying people. Um, and so he had every reason to be arrogant, but then he says in verse three of, uh, or verse seven of chapter three, he says, I no longer find my value in those things or in how impressive those things are to other people. Instead, Paul says, I find my value in knowing Christ and in being found in Christ. So humility, it looks like, just kind of starts happening in your life when you stop basing your value on what someone else thinks about you and you even stop basing your value on what you think about yourself because sometimes that can be pretty messed up and you start finding your value, your identity, your mind in Christ. Um, pretty simple example, illustration of this, so simple um, that I've used it with my five-year-old daughter before. So um, imagine, imagine that you are in second grade, okay? Imagine that, you got your backpack on. Um, I was rocking the Ninja Turtles backpack back in the day, I don't know what you were doing, but imagine you're in second grade and you have studied for a spelling test, you show up, take the test, you get the test back, and on that spelling test, the teacher gives you at the top of the page is an A+, and you're pumped. And because it's second grade, there are three stickers on there also that say like superb and terrific and fantastic, you guys remember the stickers, right? Um, You're pumped, the teacher gave you an A+. Now, you leave that classroom, and you walk out into the hallway, and there's this group of fellow second graders there, except these are some punk second graders, and they're like, hey man, how did you do on your spelling test? And they got that that little sound in their voice, like, how did you do on your spelling test? And you're like, you show them the test, and they look at it, and they're like, man, you don't know how to spell. What are you talking about? You, You probably can't even spell cat. Come on, spell cat. You know, like they start taunting you and stuff. And Now, does the opinion of those punk second graders affect the grade on your test? No, no, it's still an A plus. Now you, you go and you walk down the hallway and you get a little ways away and you're like, man, maybe, maybe those kids are right. Like maybe I don't know how to spell that well. 
um, maybe I should invest in a tutor, you know, because that's what second graders are thinking about if they don't know how to spell. So you start doubting yourself. Now, does your opinion of how you performed on that spelling test uh, affect the grade on the test? No, it's still an A+. Plus. The, the only opinion that matters is what the teacher wrote with that red pen. It says A+. Plus. And Paul says that when we know Christ, then you can have a right view of yourself. You don't have to compare yourself to someone else or try to please other people. You have this freedom from all of that, and in humility, you can really start to love other people really well. And so this right here is where this whole humility thing um, gets really good because from the perspective of what God's doing in the world, the main purpose of you becoming a humble person has less to do with you and much more to do with how humility allows you to love other people. So here's what happens. When we become humble, we can start struggling with people who are struggling. Um, Paul shows us this. Paul is suffering and struggling in prison, writing to a group of people who are not in prison. So you'd think if you were taking the time to write a letter from prison to people who are free, it would say something like this. Um, Help, get me out of here. The food is terrible. Um, These chains are hurting my hands. This guard keeps looking like he's gonna kill me. Um, Please get me out of here. Like you'd think it'd be something about yourself and getting out or something like that. But that's not what he says. Um, instead, Paul says this in chapter one of Philippians, writing to these people who are free, writing from prison, verse 29, he says, for you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. And then he says, we are in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past and you know that I am still in the midst of it. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, you're struggling just like I'm struggling. I'm struggling right alongside you. And what Paul is doing here is giving these people the gift of empathy. Um, And this must have shocked the people reading this letter because here's Paul who actually is suffering, writing to people who are free. I mean, they're struggling a little bit, but they're not struggling like Paul. But empathy, going through the struggle with someone, can happen only because of humility. Empathy is a byproduct of humility. Um, I was on the receiving end of empathy a couple of months ago. My family and I were going on vacation to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, Um, and it was an eight-hour drive from our house, and five hours into that eight-hour drive, uh, our transmission went out. And I, I don't know if You've been driving and your transmission has gone out, but here's all you need to know. When you got four kids in the back and it's like 186 degrees Fahrenheit and um, you know the kids are screaming and the transmission goes out and you're five hours from home, you were struggling. Okay, we were struggling. Um, we were stressing. We were freaking out. We did not know what to do. We are going 25 miles an hour on the interstate because it can't get out of like second gear. And we get to the first, we get off the first exit we come to and right off that exit happens to be a GM dealer and mechanic. So we pull in there and uh, pull in the parking lot. And Jenny and I are talking with each other. We're like, what are we going to do? Are we going to like try to buy a new car right now? Or are we going to pay like $10,000 for a transmission or whatever it costs for a transmission? We did not know what we were going to do. We were freaking out. I get out of the car um, and, I, and I walk in to talk to somebody in like the service department. 
And um, as I'm walking towards the building, I'm, I'm praying. I'm like, God, please put somebody in my path who actually cares about what's going on. Because I don't know if you've dealt with like too many people in like stores or customer service, but sometimes you can get people who don't really care what you're going through, you know? So I was like, please put somebody in my path who cares what I'm going through. And um, first person I came to was Jeffrey. And Jeffrey's awesome. I told Jeffrey, and he, he probably saw that I was stressing. I was like, man, here's the deal. <laughs> we are five hours from home, told him the whole thing. You know, transmission, 186 degrees, four kids, people crying. We're, you know, like, our pet's heads are falling off. That's a dumb and dumber uh, reference. But he, he, got the, he got the gist. We were struggling. And, and, and he listened to me, and this is what he said after he heard me. Uh, he, he didn't at first say anything about the transmission or about the money it's going to cost or the time it's going to take or anything like that. The first thing he said was, man, I know what you're going through. Um, a few years ago, my kids, they were little, and uh, we were on vacation, and we broke down in the middle of nowhere, and I know what you're going through. That was rough. Like, it, I wouldn't want anybody to go through that. That's, that's, that, that's rough what you're going through. And here's what we're going to do. We're gonna bring you inside, we're gonna set up a little place for your kids to play, and we're gonna give you guys some food, and we're gonna make sure you get out of here um, pretty quickly. Hopefully you don't have to miss any vacation, we'll, we'll hook you up, um, but I know what you're going through. And here's what happened when he said that to me, when he said, I know what you're going through, is, is Jeffrey the stranger became Jeffrey this guy that I had this connection with, because he chose to enter into the struggle with me. His transmission was fine in his car, but he saw that I was struggling, and in humility, he showed me empathy because he entered into my struggle. Um, and in case you guys are wondering, the transmission was fixed. It was covered under warranty. GM covered the whole thing, and it's awesome. So I knew you guys were going to be worried about the transmission if I didn't fi finish the story. But sometimes when people around us are struggling or going through a life crisis, um, or, or having like a, a breakdown or, or coming with us with a problem, sometimes when that happens, we wanna tell them what they should do or what they shouldn't do. Um, maybe you've been on the receiving end of that. You've gone to somebody with a problem and they wanted to tell you what you should do or what you should think and all you wanted them to do was just listen to you. Um, somebody recently told me this. They said the two most important words you can say when you're talking to somebody who's struggling or when you're ministering to somebody, two most important words you can say are not you should. Uh, because most of the time, that person already knows what they should be doing. The two most important words you can say are me too. Uh, next time someone around you is struggling, they come to you, think of that phrase, me too, instead of you should. It's saying, you struggle, me too. You mean sometimes you have doubts about yourself and about God and how it all works, me too. You mean sometimes you compare yourself to other people and that kind of gets you down, you don't know? Me too. Uh, you, mean, you mean you come from a different personal history and perspective on life than me? I'll struggle with you. Um, you mean you didn't want to wake up and come to chapel this morning? Like, I, I, don't, I can't help you there. I can't help you there. But. <laughs> no, we struggle with each other. And that's what Paul's doing here. This is the great apostle Paul we're talking about. The, the dude wrote like half the New Testament uh, and he's writing to these no names at some church in Philippi, but in his love and in his humility, he gets down on their level and he tells them, I'm struggling with you, me too. Um, and I'm so glad that he got down on their level 
Because when he does that, then he shows us what it looks like to have the, the mind, the attitude of Christ. And the mind of Christ, the attitude of Christ, it's not like the Pharisees back in those days, because the Pharisees were the people that stood off at a distance, and they looked in, and they told people what they should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing. But Jesus, he's the one who, as God, he stepped down from the main stage of heaven, And he came down to where we are and he humbled himself and he was born like we are born and he walked like we walk and he hung out with some of the worst people in society. He hung out with, you know, lepers and prostitutes and tax collectors and he even squeezed in some time for for some religious leaders like me and um, he, he hung out with the worst people and he did really weird and humble things like he scribbled in the dirt and he washed people's feet and he cried when his friends died and he struggled as we struggle, and he suffered as we suffer, and he was tempted as we're tempted, and he came down here into our mess to show us so that we could know that when we struggle, we have a God who doesn't stand on a stage and look down on us, but we have a God who steps into our situation and says, me too. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus Christ is humility personified. And the one who became humble is the only one, the same one, who can transform your heart and your mind so that you're free from the craziness of pride, trying to please people, comparing yourself to someone else, And instead of turning to yourself, you can turn to Christ, and in him, you can truly begin to love other people really well. In my life, anytime pride has been kind of rooted out, and it's a journey that still continues, but anytime pride has been rooted out, it's always involved a whole bunch of God's grace And it's always involved this personal, intentional surrender to the way of Christ, um, a humbling of myself before God. I remember a key moment my junior year of college. um, I was in, for a variety of reasons, one of the darkest, downest times of my life. Um, It was a a lot of self doubt a lot of doubting what God was doing in my life. Um, I had just broken up with my girlfriend at the time, which ended up being a blessing. Um, a, lot of, a lot of comparing myself to other people and a lot of unhappiness. And, and I happened to go, during that time frame, I happened to go to a, a, a worship service, a church service on campus, um, the college I was going to, and the, the guy who was speaking, he said something at some point about this idea of emptying ourselves to Christ, of surrendering our life to Christ. And, um, and I left that church service, didn't, didn't do anything in that church service, left that service, went back to my dorm room, and, um, and, and I just sat there and I kept thinking about two things, how unhappy I was in this idea of emptying myself to Christ, surrendering my life to Christ. And, and it was one of those feelings where I was like, man, I can't stay in this place, I had to get out of there. And, and I, I grabbed my keys and I got in my, my Chevy Blazer 
And I was going to go for a drive, but I didn't make it far. I drove across campus to an empty, fairly empty parking lot. And I sat there in the parking space, and I just started, started kind of weeping, and I started crying, and I started crying out to God. And, and this, was, this was my prayer, is in that parking lot, I began to pray, God, I feel like I'm supposed to surrender my life to you. I feel like I'm supposed to empty of myself so that you can fill me. That's what it feels like, but it's so hard. Like, that feels so hard right now. But I'm gonna do it. That's what I was praying. God, I'm gonna do it. And so I started thinking of things to surrender, and I was like, God, at this moment, uh, I was like, God, I I don't know what, um, I don't know anything about the future. I don't know where, like, my direction is. I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing, but God, please, I wanna surrender my future to you. And then I started kind of chuckling to myself because I was like, man, I don't even know my future. I have no clue what I'm gonna do, yet that feels like a big deal to surrender to God. Like, that's nothing, right? So I went on to the next thing. I was like, God, um, I want you to take my anxiety over, uh, like my worry over who my future spouse will be. Like, I want you to just take, take my love life. If you want me to be single forever, Lord, take it, you know? And, and like I just broken up with my girlfriend, I started chuckling to myself because I was like, I don't even have a girlfriend, yet I'm acting like it's a big deal to surrender my love life to Christ. Like that feels silly. And I kept going. I was like, God, take my money. And like I was broke. And so like <laughs> all these things, all these things that I wanted to surrender and it felt like God was getting the short end of the stick. But what happened as I prayed this prayer of surrender is that I experienced Christ with me in the middle of my struggle. Uh, the God of the universe came down, and by his grace, through his spirit, he met with me. But as I felt the presence of Christ, and as I surrendered to him, then all my focus stopped being on myself, and I came to this place where I truly desired God more than I desired for God to figure out my future. Um, I came to this place to where I wanted to know Christ more than I wanted to know what other people thought about me. And for me, it was a glimpse of what surrender or emptying myself or humbling myself could look like, what it could look like for me to humble myself before God, to take my eyes off of myself. So this is what I want us to hear this morning. The way of Christ is the way of humility. You don't have to be in control. You don't always have to be right. You don't have to have the last word. You don't always have to worry about looking good or performing right. You can see things from a perspective that is different from your own. We can go through the struggle together, and here's the good news. Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, is with you with us in the middle of the struggle. Humility, the mind of Christ. We're gonna sing one last song together. And uh, it's a simple song, it's an old song. Some of you might know this song, many of you might. But it's really a prayer of humility. Um, I hope you would make this prayer that we're gonna sing the prayer of you, allow it to form you and shape you before God and before Christ. I would like to just pray, pray for us right now. 
God, we worship you because through your son, Jesus Christ, you came down to our mess and you showed us what you look like. It is in the midst of the struggle that we're in and while you're with us that you change us. God, we pray, we confess that we often have our eyes on ourselves. We often are consumed with our own stuff. But Lord, we pray that you would take our eyes off of ourselves. And in doing so, may you change our hearts, change our minds to look more like the mind of Christ so that we can love others really well. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.